Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. Is that the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Sure, with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. episode 189 of the Podium and Panel podcast. We have three cases today. The first case today is from the Seventh Circuit, St. Paul Guardian Insurance Company versus Walsh Construction Company. The second is from the Illinois Supreme Court, Project 44 Inc. versus Four Kites Inc. The third and final is from the Illinois Appellate Court, Fourth District, Phillips versus Havanar. Stephen Chilwolf had an excellent post on the recent oral argument in St. Paul Guardian Insurance Company versus Walsh Construction Company before the Seventh Circuit. The questions presented by the appellant in this long-running dispute are, one, whether any of the claims asserted by the City of Chicago against Walsh in the underlying lawsuit, which arise from the failure of defective products supplied by LB Steel, constitute claims for property damage potentially within the coverage of the insurance policies issued by the insurers to LB Steel, under which Walsh was an additional insured, triggering the insurer's duty to defend Walsh. Number two, if the insurers owed Walsh a duty to defend against the claims asserted in the city's lawsuit, whether the insurers are obligated to identify Walsh for the $10 million it paid to settle that lawsuit. Number three, if the insurers owed Walsh a duty to defend against the claims asserted in the city's lawsuit, whether the insurer's intentional disregard of Walsh's tender of defense, in part to avoid the expense of filing a declaratory judgment action, constitutes vexatious and unreasonable claims handling warranty and relief under section 155 of the Illinois Insurance Code. Number four, whether the failure of defective products supplied by LB Steel that were incorporated into the canopy structure built by Walsh at O'Hare International Airport resulted in property damage to the canopy within the meaning of LB Steel's insurance policies, such as the insurers are obligated to pay the October 14, 2015 judgment in favor of Walsh and against LB Steel as amended in an appeal. Pat, tell us about this case. Well, Dan, uh, the, the reconstruction of the uh, Walsh, or the Walsh, of the O'Hare Airport dates back over 20 years. Uh, this, discuss, this, uh, this coverage dispute has been going on for nearly that long because shortly after the, uh, the installation of this canopy, there were these problems that arose with fracturing of the welds and other you know, uh, members within this system that were uh, uh, defective. The steel was no good, apparently. The, the structural welds were no good. I've always struggled with the term structural weld. It's the idea that, that you're going to hold the thing together with a weld, but apparently that's how it works. Um, and question of whether that's property damage. And one thing that came up, Dan, was the acuity versus MI case, um, because which is the recently decided by the Illinois Supreme Court as to whether what constitutes property damage. Counsel for the uh, the the insured uh, is obviously very happy to cite that case. I'm not sure it applies here, but uh, certainly if you were in his position, you'd do the same thing. Uh, cite, cite the case, see what happens. I think the question that uh, so, so what happened here is Walsh subcontracted with LB Steel to provide the steel. 
into for this installation of this uh, canopy over O'Hare. And let's just say it didn't go well. Uh, the steel was not what uh, they had uh, they had hoped for. Uh, and fortunately, we're only dealing with potential property damage. We're not dealing with humans being hurt. You'll recall there was a very substantial verdict several years ago where there was a portion, I can't remember what city property was, it may have been in O'Hare, but not related to this project, where there was a portion of the project or a portion of the steel that collapsed and injured this woman and the verdict was like $148 million or something. Um, she was rendered a, at least a paraplegic, if not a quadriplegic, uh, but you get the idea that that wasn't this. Uh, this would have been a much more catastrophic uh, set of injuries had this canopy uh, collapsed. Uh, fortunately, it did not, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't property damage because there's a lot of, that doesn't mean by itself there wasn't property damage or damage because there was a substantial amount of work that needed to be done to remediate this situation. Uh, Dan mentioned uh, $10 million paid by Walsh to settle the claim. And then there was a claim against LB Steel, uh, who had supplied the steel, allegedly defective steel to Walsh that was then installed. So you have lawsuits upon lawsuits upon lawsuits. Uh, one of the things I find most interesting is the, the third question that Dan articulated that came from the briefs is whether there's bad faith uh, under Section 155 for just not doing anything um, and not filing a deck action, not filing, not uh, filing or uh, defending under reservation, just denies that by itself. But I can see it might be a stopple. Uh, I don't think it's a stopple here because they're not relying on exclusions. They're relying upon the insurance agreement to say it just isn't covered. Um, I, so I'm not sure. It's, I don't think it's a stopple. It's the best it could be. I don't see it being bad faith. It'll be interesting to see what happens here. It seemed, Dan, based upon the argument that the court seemed to be saying, where is the, the, the damage or how is this damage to property um, when this is all one piece? How do you separate these things out? How do we draw the line? How do we get, how do we know this? And, and, and correct me if, if you see this as different, but it always it, 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 it's not that they don't understand it, but it always the, the, particularly just Chief Justice Sykes, but some of the other just other judges, I'm sorry, Chief Judge Sykes on the Seventh Circuit. They always you know, this is Illinois law. They're always disconnected. They always want to disconnect themselves from the from what uh, Illinois insurance law is. They see a ton of it. They have to know a ton of it because they deal with it all the time. But they're always like. Illinois insurance law tells us this. They're always very careful to talk about, you know, they they talk about it much differently than do state court judges for obvious reasons. They understand they're doing it, they're doing the eerie the eerie uh, dance here, and they're always very careful about that to say this is Illinois law. We're going to try to do what Illinois law says, but we're not Illinois judges; we're federal judges. They're very cognizant of their role in the system under Erie uh, to to make these kinds of guesses, and you always get the sense that they don't really like doing it. Uh, they really wish they were doing something else, 1983, uh, something, you know, uh, patent, something along the lines that, that that's, you know, in their wheelhouse or in their, you know, it's federal law. They, 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 they do it because it, they've got jurisdiction over it, but they're always, they always seem to be a bit apprehensive uh, about the whole, the whole situation of having to decide issues under state law. Uh, maybe I'm misreading the situation, but that's just how it comes across to me. Um, not that they aren't able to do it. They do it all the time and, and, 
usually they usually do a pretty good job. Now, the Willem Dalco decision uh, being the exception, but uh, they they usually get it. We'll, we'll find out how, whether they were right or wrong about the Willem Dalco decision before too long from the Illinois uh, Supreme Court. But uh, that's ultimately what we'll decide what Illinois no, law is. Dan, what are your you're thoughts? Right, and part of it, I think, I, I, I think you're right in that pad. I do sense that reluctance, but I think part of it is, is as we've talked about on here, in, in so many areas of insurance law, the path and kind of the bright line rules are not as clear as might be the case. I, we talked about previously on this other insurance provisions, for example, in the long kind of winding road that Illinois courts have taken on other insurance provisions and conflicts between cases, and it's not like a straight line. So I agree with you, but it does seem like, you know, they're especially, you don't, you don't get that sense when they're dealing with Indiana cases or the Wisconsin cases that you hear occasionally that they have the same qualms. So it is interesting. And as we've talked about, this case is a long, long case. A lot of disputes have happened along the way. So it's uh, interesting to see what the Seventh Circuit does with this one. Yeah, you get a big project like this, the, the rehab of O'Hare that took forever, uh, and a substantial piece of infrastructure like O'Hare, you're going to have some lawsuits, and some of them are going to be coverage lawsuits like this one, and it's going to take a long time to get it all resolved. So with that, we'll take our first break, and we will come back uh, with Project 44, Inc. versus Four Kites, Inc. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to segment two of episode 189 of the Podium and Panel podcast. Uh, if audio is not great this this week, it's Dan and I are both on the road. Dan's in Louisville. I am in Crested Butte, Colorado, um, bar, bar Association Functions. Uh, so we are recording early on Sunday morning with questionable hotel Wi-Fi. Uh, and uh, um, so we'll do the best we can. I, I'm traveling back. Uh, after, I have to drive four and a half, five hours back to Denver. And uh, Dan's uh, in, in Louisville for the House of Delegates uh, meeting after the National Council of Bar Presidents this uh, this past week. So uh, lots and lots of uh, bar, bar association events. So following the decisions in Cialino versus Simon and Dent versus Constellation in 2021 and 2022, respectively, the Illinois Supreme Court has the opportunity to further elaborate on Illinois defamation law. In Project 44, Inc. versus Four Kites, Inc., the court will consider the following question. Who qualifies as a third party for the purposes of publication when a defamation claim is brought by a corporate plaintiff and whether the appellate court erred in holding that any statement made by a corporate representative, regardless of that representative's role within the corporation, or sorry, with the corporation, has been published for purposes of a defamation claim? The circuit court dismissed the plaintiff's lawsuit and the appellate court reversed. The question is particularly important because the plaintiff has alleged defamation per se, which if they are allowed to proceed would essentially mean the only question would be damages because the publication issue would have been resolved. Uh, Dan, can you tell us about this case? Yes, Pat, very interesting case and a lot of discussion about what qualifies as representing the corporation. I think one of the things I'd like to start with, uh, Pat, is I was listening to this case and 
good reminder that we have in Illinois and the model rules have uh, rule 113 organization as a client. I think it's important to talk about that because um, we've, we've talked about, you know, corporations or persons and, and, and those issues. But what rule 113 uh, says is a lawyer employed or retained by an organization represents the organization acting through its duly authorized constituents. And I think paragraph uh, one, um, uh, common one, an organizational client is a legal entity, but it cannot act except for its officers, directors, employees, shareholders, and other constituents. Officers, directors, employees, and shareholders are the constituents of the corporate organizational client. The duties defined apply to unincorporated associations, etc. There was a lot of discussion. The appellant got up and talked about the fact that uh, in this case, we, we you have a situation where um, really the... Uh, opening question was who qualifies as the third party um, and as you said if, if this is a, a defamation per se um, if, if all we're talking about is damages in the corporate context uh, what happened here was an anonymous uh, letter uh, was sent to an officer and to two board members and uh, the um, uh, and one of one of the interesting things I think in this case, Pat, is that they they refer to a faucet the faucet case, which is a Utah District Court case, uh, but there doesn't seem to be um, one of the things that the appellant lawyer mentioned at the outset is that this will shape not only Illinois law in terms of uh, defamation in this setting, but it could uh, help shape national law because there's just not a lot of law on these. Uh, these issues, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens with respect to uh, to that. Um, as mentioned, two anonymous emails, one went to a, two board members and one went to an executive. Um, there's questions about whether there was reputational harm. As you said, it's, uh, it's defamation per se. Um, the question is, is if it went just to these people, is there publication and and Again, a lot of questions about whether or not, uh, in this context, uh, one is, is there a lot of discussion about, the appellee talked a lot about who is this group. Um, I'm not so sure I agree with the, the argument that we don't know who the C-suite is or that you can't specifically define some executives and leaders uh, that, that are part and parcel of the, of the leadership. Um, some of the justices asked about fiduciary duty and other, and in rebuttal, the Appellant lawyer talked about some of those uh, concepts that the, the Illinois Supreme Court has long been able to decipher. And, and well, we do it all the time um, in the privilege context in the control group test. Right. I mean, we, we it, right. You, you can't tell me that C-suite, which was the term used by one of the part one of the lawyers, is substantially different than control group. I mean, yeah. what, what are we talking about here? <laughs> I mean, C-level officers. Uh, Members of the board, members of the board of directors are, and so, and just to make sure we understand is that this was, there was an anonymous email from a competitor. If I got that right, Dan, that went to these, yeah, went to the people within the organization. So in order to be defamatory, so if I say Dan is a thief and I say it only to Dan, I don't say it to anybody else. There's no publication. I just told Dan he was a thief. Now Dan may punch me in the nose, but, and I might deserve it. 
but there's been no defamation. There might have been a battery by Dan on me, but there wasn't a. There, right. there, there's no. There's no publication. But whereas if I say it to, to use it in interpersonal, because I say it to Dan's wife, I say Dan's a thief. Is that publication? Well, I think it would be uh, that the marriage is right. not an entity, uh, so so to speak, uh, but a corporation. Yeah, I tell the board of directors, I sell, I tell a high level officer, you know, there's these things going on. That sure sounds like um, that. That sure sounds like that's the same entity. I haven't published it to anybody. And if I told, suppose I told a bank or I told an investor, a potential investor, that's a, that that would be publication. But that's not what happened here. This right. was apparently done as a piece of corporate sabotage, essentially, is, is the allegation uh, to try to. To try to yeah. upset uh, the, the the circumstance or the the business of a competitor. It's really nasty stuff, but that's what's alleged here. I, I don't know if it happened or not, but that's what's alleged. Hey. Yeah, one of the interesting arguments made was that if you're sole proprietor, again, you're the same person, so there would be no. If it was just published to the sole proprietor, but if it's a single member LLC, then there's could be a distinction, and and, and that was argued to the court. Um, and as I, you know, I, it's one of the reasons I looked at Rule 113 because I remembered in the comments it talked about the board because that was one of the other arguments of the appellee is that board members are not in fact uh, part of part and parcel or don't speak for the organization. And I think that justices, uh, Justice Tice and, and Cunningham and other justices, I think we're trying to push back on that and really get a sense of what what exactly. If, if, if we can't determine certain people, Judge, Justice, Chief Justice Tice, I think, questioned a little bit about that. If we, if we can't, like you said, uh, determine certain people that can speak for the organization, then, you know, it gets hard. And, you know, the, the appellee's argument about the, uh, the uh, uh, carpet sweeper or something, I mean, that kind of stretches it because nobody, I don't think anybody would, just because it's a carpet sweeper, I don't think that person falls into the C-suite no matter what organization it is, unless it's a street sweeping or carpet sweeping company that's as executives of the or it's or it's undercover know. boss right so <laughs> there you go so interesting question like I, I, I said, I, and, and this will yeah. have an impact on on how uh, this is treated but uh, based on the arguments at least i don't know that this is going to go in in some direction that is is uh not not uh logical i guess yeah i i i would say that of the correct me if i'm wrong i don't know the history of the practice of all of the justices but i do know the i do recall that justice cunningham she was a lawyer at northwestern hospital right she was and so she, she would have dealt counsel. with these she would have dealt with these she was the general counsel at northwestern hospital she would have dealt with these issues as a lawyer um you know, the other, you know, the others, I'm not sure what their experience was, if that was, if it was that kind of level of, she's, she has a very, bring a very neat perspective to this, considering what she did as, as a lawyer before she went on the bench. Right. Uh, and so I, I hope that she writes so we can maybe get a benefit of that perspective because telling a general, the general counsel, she doesn't know who her bosses are. Really? I think she knows who her bosses are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think so. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Phillips versus Havner. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. 
please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Back for segment three of episode 189 of the Podium and Panel podcast. What medical testimony must underlie the testimony of a billing expert to allow her, who is a nurse, to testify to the cost of future care? That is a central question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court, 4th District, decides Phillips versus Havanar. The plaintiffs, the parents of a four-year-old severely mauled by a dog, claim the need for multiple surgeries to repair the scars and implant fat. At trial, the circuit court barred the plaintiff's billing expert, Rebecca Bush, from testifying to future medical care for scar revision because the court found the plaintiff's treating physicians did not provide a sufficient foundation for the future care. As to the defendant, the court questioned the future medical care of 10000 awarded by the jury because that represented only one of more than a dozen surgeries the plaintiffs were claiming they wanted their child to have when he was older. Pat, tell us about this interesting case. Thanks, Dan. And, and so let, let's talk about what a billing expert is. So billing experts in Illinois are really important uh, because we have the, 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 the collateral source rule. And oftentimes the billing expert, now that's not this case, but just in general, because the billing expert will come in and say, no, these, these are not reasonable uh, prices for what was charged. And you can bring the person for this for that purpose. In this case, she was doing something different. In this case, she was trying to protect future care. So doctors typically don't know what the cost of their procedures are. They know what the procedures are that need to be done, and they can't really tell you. Um, plaintiffs sometimes try to get that information through doctors, but then you, when you when you dig down and you by dig down, I mean ask three or four questions. The doctor doesn't have the first idea how the numbers are arrived at, who's charged for what, by whom, what their competitors charge, if they're reasonable. They have no idea. They have no clue because they don't. That's not how it's done. So what the, the plaintiff tried to do here, understandable, is they said, well, we're going to take what the doctor said was necessary along with what the nurse says. These I, uh, these I, are the IPC codes is that I, I'm drawing a blank ICP codes that say and, and how much those are how much those are going to cost in, in the future. And then you get an economist to put that together and to reduce that to present value. So you have like three experts you've got to line up and all these experts got to line up Well, in this case. The, the court held that the, the link between the doctor and the, and the billing expert was broken because they didn't get, the plaintiff didn't get sufficient testimony as to whether that was, uh, what, whether, what the surgeries were that were going to be done and whether they were reasonable and necessary and all the rest. Notwithstanding the fact that the parents both testified that the child is now six, he's got some bad scars, he was missing like 300 inches of skin. It was just, a, he got apparently just destroyed by this, by this dog. Um, and he had, there are other claims as well, but this is the most interesting claim and the claim that has the far, I think has the farthest uh, application outside of uh, this context, um, outside of this case, I mean. And what does the plaintiff have to do to link these things up? That, as we said, the trial court uh, struck this testimony, didn't allow it. But then you have the jury coming back and awarding some future medical and just kind of making it up, it seems. That didn't seem to be have a relationship to anything, although jurors are given a fair amount of latitude uh, in, in awarding things. It has to be based on something. It's like, it sure sounds like a compromise was made. 
they had gotten some information as to what one of these surgeries would cost. And perhaps some of the jurors wanted to give 10 surgeries and some of them wanted to give none. And so they compromised on one or something. I'm purely speculating as to what happened. But that's certainly the suggestion made by the question by the justice is these jurors didn't. Uh, Where did this number come from, counsel? Uh, this is uh, counsel for uh, Appley that was being posed this question. This just sounds like you guys just made this crap up. Uh, this doesn't seem to work. So, uh, but this is a case to keep an eye on because this kind of testimony, um, the application of of uh, billing experts and what's needed to underlie them, because as a nurse, she can't testify as to what's reasonable and necessary. She's a nurse. She can testify based upon her experiences to cost. She can look at the rates in a particular region, this kind of a thing. She can know, she can say these are the, the the codes that are applied and this is how much they each cost and this kind of thing. But she can't tell you which, she can't tell you what surgeries need to be done. And that's where the disconnect was, is that she was testifying as these are the codes and, and, the, and the, the, the trial court's like, no, she can't testify to the codes as to which ones are necessary. You can tell you how much they cost, but she can't tell you what the codes are. Um, and that's the that's where the the breakdown was and why her testimony uh, was stricken. Uh, so an, a, an important case for both plaintiffs and defendants to keep an eye on uh, on this issue. Dan, uh, do you have uh, some thoughts on that case on this case? I agree with you, Pat. It's uh, uh, an important case because these billing experts are often in these cases, and uh, it's uh, it'll have important impacts on again on on these cases and like you said it's not just for plaintiffs or defendants it's both that need to be watching this case and i'm sure that you and and i and on this podcast and uh, on linkedin will continue to update folks on how this shakes out as it as it moves forward indeed so um th this i said to dan at the break uh, this could be a short episode because we don't have we don't have any uh business interruption for coba covid bipa gipa ipa nothing nothing there we don't have any predictions because no, no cases came out that we had talked about so dan remains at 289 and a half 59 and a half and 20. i am 265 286 and a half 62 and a half and 20. uh our prediction sure to go wrong this week dan um We've got uh, St. Paul Guardian versus Walsh. I think this gets affirmed. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Project 44 versus Four Kites. I think the circuit court opinion gets reinstated and the appellate court gets reversed. I think we get right. some rule as to what as to what constitutes publication. And then Phillips versus Havner, right. I think, gets affirmed, too. Gets affirmed. I think it's think? affirmed. I think so. Yeah. All right, Th that brings us to the rule of the week. Um, so, uh, Dan, do you want to introduce this? Sure. The the, the judges in the southern uh, part of Illinois, uh, at the federal level, instituted a program that was designed to give young female advocates and, and other diverse candidates uh, the ability to argue in front of the uh, court and they would, they would get extra time and and, uh, and and things of that nature. And the three judges who were instituting this program have been sued uh, under. Uh, I don't know if they've been know, sued, the but a complaint's been made. A complaint. I think. Made. I think. That, I think a right. complaint. Yeah, complaint's been made to the to the what's the body that regulates federal judges? Um, I think the 
Is it the judicial? I, I can't remember right now. Um, the the office of me. the clerk, the judicial conduct complaints. The United States. Yep. It's to yep. the Seventh Circuit. The complaint was made. Yeah, and uh, I have to say, I haven't made, made very many complaints. I mean, I've made very many complaints against a federal judge, so I didn't know where this would go. Nah, <laughs> nah you know, it's you, you don't see it a lot. I mean, you know, we. we uh, I don't think you see many state court judges uh, uh, formal complaints made either, just because the nature of the beast. Um, I think a lot of times, I think, I think this is through a, an advocacy group and a special, you know, special group. I don't, I don't think that individual lawyers would necessarily, unless it was so egregious that they had to seek relief. It's it's probably not a good practice approach to, you know, these filing complaints against people you appear appear before in front of. Um, this case was talked That's about right. at, uh, at the National Conference of Bar Presidents that, that I'm at, and we had a DEI panel. And uh, um, one of the things that was raised uh, by, by uh, individuals is, is that, you know, kind of like in the artificial intelligence and some of the things that are, you know, happening, we have to talk to some courts now if you're using artificial intelligence. Um, I think there's questions here about you know, having the best advocate speak and and arguments of of that nature, right? And if you do things like this, is it uh, in the best interest of the client necessarily whether, you know, the diversity goals are being met or not? So it's an an interesting uh, issue. And I I think in the context of the affirmative action cases from the Supreme Court last uh, year and, and some of the developments in this area, I think we'll see more of this kind of challenge and, um, it's uh, just interesting to watch. So I, I want to focus on the third prong of this, of, of section 2C of the rule, and, and I'll read it. Um, and this is goes into the analysis of whether the court is going to grant oral argument, because oral argument in federal di- district court is pretty rare, uh, even on motions to dismiss. That usually doesn't doesn't happen very much, at least in, in the Northern District of Illinois. So... It says, permit other more experienced counsel of record the ability to provide some assistance to newer female or minority attorney who is arguing the motion where appropriate during the oral argument. Now, I can certainly understand wanting, needing to provide assistance to a newer attorney, but why by dint of their sex and ethnicity do females and minority attorneys necessarily need help from a more experienced lawyer? I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand that because because they're they're a female or minority, they need help. They're not able to do it themselves. Um, newer, I get that doesn't have anything to do with sex or ethnicity. It has to do with your new. And yeah, that and I've and I certainly have had that circumstance. I had it happen um, about a year ago. I think it was. There was a newer attorney, and usually the rule is is that each side gets one lawyer. You don't get to have two. And this is a circumstance where it was a new lawyer and it happened that she was female and opposing counsel let her argue and she missed a couple things. And so he picked up the ball and what am I going to do? I mean, it's probably, he, she said, he, she didn't say anything wrong. There just were some additional arguments he wanted to make. And so he made them uh, and he was trying to train her. I was like, great, that's what should happen. I, I, I don't know why we need a rule for this. Um, if you've, got young people, if you've got people that don't have experience, you need to give them the experience. You need to get them on their feet. You've got to send them to court. Um, that's our responsibility as lawyers. Um, and I, I find it, it that particular provision extraordinarily paternalistic, that simply because someone was is, is female or, or, or 
an ethnic minority, a racial minority, that they, they, they must have to have some experienced person standing next to them because they can't possibly do the job by themselves. Um, I'm quite certain they can do the job, otherwise they wouldn't have been hired to do the job. And if they don't have the experience, then that's a different category. And they should be given the experience, and the judges should encourage that uh, to give young people on their, get young people on their feet or attorneys that don't have experience on their feet. Uh, that's critical. Uh, we're, we have a, it's very hard to get trials. So this week we've got a trial in our office and one of my colleagues is going to try the case. She was, she hired me when I was, when I was a first, when I was a first year lawyer and she works with us now and she's going to try the case and I'm sending, uh, one of our first year associates over to, um, uh, to watch. He's not going to be, he's not going to, she's going to try the case, but he's going to watch help her. But he, because just the mere fact he's going to get a chance to watch a trial, because you can't see very many trials. Uh, and so I'm going to send him over. He's a big deal. Because he's got to be able to watch it. It's, it's, it's a bench trial. It's going to take an afternoon. It's not a very complex thing, but he needs to see it. Uh, and so, um, but it, so it's, it's incumbent upon the senior lawyers to do these things, um, irrespective of, the sex or uh, ra uh, race of the person that go that's that's gonna that's that's the young person that needs the that needs the experience. You need to give them the experience because that's what's best for us. It's what's sorry, what's best for them? It's what's best for the firm. It's what's best for our clients. It's what's best for the practice of law. All of the things, um, and it has nothing to do with their with with any special category other than being inexperienced. Inexperienced is a category that may even apply to a lawyer who's 60, just hadn't done something before. Get them on their feet. Let them do it. So that's my view. Uh, we'll see what the we'll see what the Seventh Circuit does with this. Dan, anything about that? Anything to respond to about that? I agree. I think that's right. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting uh, role. One of, one of the interesting things yesterday with, with the AI panel, like I said, is uh, the moderator, Trish Rich, who both of us know, um, she kind of closed because people were talking about the, some of these court orders that say, you know, you have to disclose if you use an artificial intelligence. She said we don't disclose if if we have a first-year associate or something that's worked on the case. And she also used a, a, a good kind of comparison, I thought. She said uh, if, a, if a lawyer showed up in court drunk, there, there's not a special order that says you have to say whether you're under the influence when when you come to the court right and so um some similar here um we're not sure we need special rules to kind of talk about this i think like you said if you're in a law firm setting or any other setting you need to you know you need to develop the younger attorneys and and uh make sure that they're prepared and if they're not then regardless of anything they they shouldn't be appearing you know you want to send somebody to the seventh circuit that's never doesn't have any you know business doing being there you know and so it's uh it's it's uh it's just interesting yeah because they're not going to get any dispensation from uh from the seventh circuit in all likelihood uh they're going to get pilloried the same way everyone else does um <laughs> and i mean that in the nicest possible way it's gonna be a very nice pillory but it'll be a pillory if you're not prepared they're they're going right. to they're going to take right. you to the woodshed right uh that's that's what they do uh some <laughs> some more aggressively than others but they're going to, you're not going to have a very good day. Uh, so I, I, I no. don't, I understand the need for such a program or the desire of such a program, but it's the responsibility of the lawyers, not the judges to make sure it's happening. Um, so 
with that, we'll take our leave and uh, we'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.